0: It takes a special type of person to run a business. But the real secret ingredient, it's the ability to reinvent yourself, to accept change and be fueled by it, to innovate. At Tyro, innovation is in our DNA. From integrated FBOS and e-commerce to telehealth and banking built to answer your needs, we can help you reimagine the way you do payments and banking. Because change can be for the better. Tyro. Better business banking. T's and C's Supply Consider if products are right for you.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Menz.
0: Bail is refused. You're out of order. If it pleases the court to adopt this affirmation, please say the words "I do." I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offense, this case is dismissed. Welcome to the Whigs, a solo Whigs episode today as Whig Stephen Lawrence sits down with Barrister Douglas MacDonald Norman to talk about a fascinating figure in Indian legal history, William Broom, the British colonial judge who stayed on in 1947 when the new Indian nation was born. This wide-ranging discussion canvasses the man, his personal life, his cases, how his story fits with different conceptions of the Indian nation, as well as broader political issues such as the 1970s emergency and the role of religion in Indian politics. A little bit about our guest, Douglas MacDonald Norman, practices from eight Selborne Chambers in Sydney, where he has a diverse practice, including administrative and commercial law. Without further ado, here is the interview. Okay, well, it's good to have you on the wigs, Douglas. How are you today? I'm
1: really good, Steve. How are you? Yeah, really good. So, look, um, as we've heard in the introduction, you're here today to talk um, about William Broom. and I first became aware of William Broom when I read your article in Bar News, which uh, people can find online. It's titled, The Man Who Stayed On, A Brief Life of Justice William Broome. And I'll just read a short part of the uh, introductory uh, paragraph, because I think it's very evocative. On 15th of August 1947, at the stroke of midnight, India gained its independence. On the 26th of January 1950, the independent nation became a republic under its new constitution. Most British officials who had served and governed under the Raj departed at or soon after independence. This article examines a man who went against this trend, staying on in service to the new nation, William Broome. So who, who was William Broome? Douglas, tell us.
2: William Broome was the last British judge to remain in service in India. He came to India under the colonial regime as an official of what was called the Indian Civil Service, the steel frame which governed colonial India for the British. After the end of British governance, he stayed on in service to the new regime, first as a judge of a district court and ending his career as a judge of the Allahabad High Court, which is the superior court in India's largest state, Uttar Pradesh. Mm-hmm. Broom is a fascinating figure, both by virtue of the longevity of his service, remaining in India as a judge until 1972, and ultimately dying there in 1988, and also because of the ways in which his life bucked or rejected some of the settled norms of distance and division between the British and Indians in colonial India.
1: So, I found your article really interesting, and after I read it, um, I started to Google him and I read different things about him, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, notwithstanding your work, he's still a relatively obscure historical figure. So, how did you become aware of him? What sort of led you onto this journey? So, when I was 21 years old and studying law at
2: UTS, I received what was called the Prime Minister's Australia Asia Award, which is now part of the new Colombo Plan. And under that, my then partner, who's now my wife, and I moved to India for a year. I studied at the National Law School in Bangalore, and I worked for the Alternative Law Forum, which is a public interest law firm in Bangalore. While I was involved in litigation with the Alternative Law Forum, I noticed that British names were popping up in law reports years or even decades after I expected that they would have. That there were British chief justices in Allahabad and Punjab well into the 1960s, that the decisive break between british judges and indian judges that i'd expected wasn't actually borne out in practice mm. so i did ask my law education to taught me to do i hit the library i went through the law reports as best as i could and started tracking down who were these judges who'd stayed on and who was the last british judge to remain in service in india that ultimately led me to
1: the study of William Broome. So since you published on him, have you made contact with any of his descendants? Has he still got family in India? He does. Um, I've been incredibly grateful and privileged to have
2: the support of his family, his daughters, his son, and his grandchildren and in-laws in this work, mm-hmm. um, without giving away too many details about their lives, because I don't want them to mm. be bombarded. Um I first contacted them through his son and his daughter-in-law who run an eco-lodge in the state of Maharashtra. They put me in touch with other members of the family, some of whom still live in India, but others of whom live around the world, particularly in the United States. They've been endlessly supportive of my research and have provided invaluable details. Without their help, I couldn't have produced even a fraction of what I have.
1: Yeah, so before we move on to talk about uh, his judicial role and some of his case law. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the man? How old was he when he moved to India? So William Broom was born in 1910. Uh, he was educated in the United Kingdom.
2: He went to Latimer Upper School in Cambridge. He joined the Indian Civil Service in 1932, and so he went to India as quite a young man. Yeah, so he was
1: 22. Okay, 20s.
2: Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, he became a judge in the mid 1930s and ultimately remained in India for the rest of his life until he passed away at the age of about 78.
1: Yeah. So he went to India as a legally qualified person?
2: He that's actually something which is a bit harder to tell. He studied languages at Cambridge. He was only admitted as a barrister after he'd initially come to India as an ICS officer. Mm. What tended to happen is that officials would come to India as part of the ICS that is the Indian Civil Service. They would take up executive or administrative posts and then they could subsequently seek transfer or be transferred into the judicial service that they would ultimately go under service, district court judges or registrars. So ultimately a great deal of Broom's legal experience came after he'd arrived in India mm. and his training and qualifications came after his arrival rather than having arrived in India as a lawyer fully hatched, as it were.
1: Right, okay, okay. And in terms of... Um his sort of personal relationships. He married an Indian woman, is that right? Yes. Yeah.
2: William Broome married Swaroop Kumari Gur, who was the daughter of Hari Singh Gur, who was the first vice-chancellor of Delhi University, a very prominent legal and educational figure in India in the early 20th century. Uh, Swarup and... William Broome ultimately had a number of children together who were given Hindu names and raised as Hindus. Mm. Um, Ultimately, Broome became very much a figure in Allahabad society Mm. and resided in that city or other cities in India for the Mm. rest of his life.
1: Yeah. So did he marry her prior to independence? Yes. Um, Broome married Swaroop in
2: 1937, I believe.
1: So how common or uncommon would that have been in colonial India, do you think? It was an unusual move. In the very early
2: days of the British presence in India, as William Dalrymple has most prominently chronicled, there was a considerably greater degree of, if you like, um, cultural syncretism, that you would have British officials who would marry into Indian society and would take up roles within Indian society. It was not necessarily a relationship of distance, as it were. But certainly by the 20th century you had distinct norms of distinction and difference between coloniser and colonised. That even though Indians were able to occupy prominent positions in society in the Raj, they were able to hold administrative and political posts, even to receive knighthoods for services to the Raj, there was nonetheless a strong sense of distance Mm. between British officials and the Indian population with whom they were charged with governance. And so not just by marrying Guru, but also by raising his children as Hindus, by rejecting those norms of difference and distance, William Broom not only went against the grain of what was expected of colonial officials, but rejected some of the, the norms on which the Raj
1: itself was established. It's this sort of incredibly kind of interesting and evocative set of circumstances, isn't it? Where you've got this... Transition and change and tumult in this kind of national sense, and then you've got a British and an Indian, sort of two people in a relationship, and there must have been all sorts of tensions and so forth around that time of transition in terms of maybe do they stay or do they go, I suppose. Mm. Um, do you have any insights into how common it was for these colonial bureaucrats or officials to stay on rather than to leave?
2: Almost Every British official who was in service in India um, before 1947 left at or around 1947. It wasn't absolute. There were a number of officials who remained behind. Indeed, there were a significantly higher proportion of officials who stayed behind in Pakistan than who stayed behind in India. So there was some degree of regional difference in that regard. But to have remained in India for the rest of his life, as William Broome did, and to have continued to hold senior positions in the Indian state, even to have been promoted as a judge in independent India. That was exceptionally uncommon.
1: So he obviously became involved, and we'll talk about that in a minute, in sort of some politically controversial cases. Mm. So was it ever used against him that that he was British or not Indian or things like that? As far as I can tell, the answer is no. Indeed, if anything, he
2: appears to have enjoyed at least at the time of his initial appointment to the Allahabad High Court, a remarkable degree of support from the government of the day. So, by 1958, Broom was the senior most district court judge in Uttar Pradesh. He was being considered for appointment to the Allahabad High Court, but ran into legal difficulties because he was not an Indian citizen and because there was not at that time a route by which British citizens could become Indian citizens. And so the Mm -hmm. Prime Minister of the day, Jawaharlal Nehru, (coughs) intervened writing letters to senior officials saying that we need to find a way of addressing this legal loophole, or this legal lacuna, as it were, or finding a way by which this can be addressed, because In Nehru's words, William Broome was more Indian than many people born in India and was as close to being Indian as anyone could be without being an Indian citizen. Nehru noted at that time that he'd known Broome and his family Mm. for decades and strongly supported his candidature for the bench. So in 1958, with the assistance of the Prime Minister and the government, Broome renounced his British citizenship, became an Indian citizen and was then appointed to the bench. So far from his foreign background being an, a barrier to advancement, mm. if anything, it's something the government of the day
1: strove to help him overcome. Interesting, interesting. So, so what sort of judge was he? Have you got an insight into that? Broome was a liberal,
2: creative judge, um, both on the district court under the British and on the Allahabad High Court under the Indian government. He, his writing style is clear and straightforward there's often a significant degree of clarity and common sense that I think would stand out well in a judge in any era and in any place. In some respects, he seems to have proven himself to be more liberal than the Supreme Court of India in his time, and indeed to be more liberal than some aspects of contemporary Indian jurisprudence.
1: Um, So I mentioned before that he got involved in some politically controversial cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us about that?
2: So, in 1971, Indira Gandhi, the then Prime Minister of India, ran for re-election to the Lok Sabha, the lower house of the Indian Parliament. She was re-elected in a landslide, but her chief opponent, a man named Raj Narayan, challenged her re-election on the basis of misuse of state funds and state resources. The dispute ended up before Justice Broome, um, and Justice Broom, in an uh, an important interlocutory judgment departed from British practice by finding that Raj Narayan was permitted to serve interrogatories on Indira Gandhi and to seek discovery from her. That is, to demand answers from her in response to certain questions and to require her to produce documents in relation to her election. This was ultimately appealed to the Supreme Court, and certain aspects of Justice Broom's orders were. Modified both on appeal and then when the matter was subsequently remitted to him. But this was an important judgment in terms of demonstrating that election disputes were not immune from ordinary civil procedures and as a decisive, if short-lived, victory against the Prime Minister of the day in the courts of India, proving that even the most powerful woman in the land was not
1: immune to the law of the land. Mm, Yeah, wow, fascinating. So I think I saw in your article that his independence... Um, as a judge, was was sort of noted um, and legendary, perhaps. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that? Even under the British,
2: William Broom had been regarded as an unusually independent-minded judge. He'd objected to the detention of uh, suspects without bail during his time uh, on the district courts under the Raj, and even going to the point of threatening colonial officials with contempt of court for the continued practice. As a judge on the Allahabad High Court, he handed down important, if unpopular, judgments in defense of the rights of sex workers and uh, low-caste activists. One of his most important judgments in a case called uh, Koshalia and State of Uttar Pradesh struck down a statute under which state officials were permitted to expel sex workers from particular districts purely upon being satisfied that it was in the public interest to do so. Justice Broom found that this violated the sex workers' rights to freedom of movement, freedom of residence, and, fre- freedom of, and other freedoms under Article 19 of the Constitution. This judgment in favour of a stigmatised social group ultimately went further than the Supreme Court of the day was willing to do, which ultimately reversed this judgment and upheld this constitutionality of that statute. This interlocutory contest with Indira Gandhi, which I've noted before, seems to have been one last independent stand in a career that ended in retirement shortly afterwards. Uh, Broom and his wife had been social friends of Indira and her husband for a prolonged period. After the judgment against her in 1971, Indira Gandhi continued to send Christmas cards to William Broom's wife, but not to William Broom himself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So just for the benefit of listeners, what's the the sort of broader context of the emergency, what was that all about? So
2: the contest in 1971, the election contest in 1971 and the litigation which resulted from it is ultimately part of the pattern which led up to the darkest hour in the history of modern Indian democracy. After four years of legal contest, the Allahabad High Court ultimately found that Indira Gandhi had been unlawfully elect, re-elected to parliament, she went to the Supreme Court, and which issued a stay on. So why was she unlawfully
1: elected? What was that
2: about? It's effectively, a te- it's effectively a technicality about the misuse of state resources. I think state trucks in support of her re-election.
1: Right. Okay. The So there was a petition to contest her election. Exactly. Yeah,
2: okay. The contest itself actually seems to have been is something. Seems to have been obscured by the broader controversy which surrounded it, mm-hmm. especially in circumstances where part of the irony of it is that Indira Gandhi's enormous popularity in early 1970s India surely would have meant she would have been re elected with or without any use of state resources. Nonetheless, the court's orders that she be disqualified from Parliament and her subsequent attempts to stay those orders against a background of growing political and social upheaval as she fought to hold on to power, ultimately led Prime Minister Gandhi to declare a state of emergency in 1975. For the next two years, she ruled India without any form of legal or political constraint whatsoever. So is that using a provision in the constitution or statute? Or The Indian constitution permits a declaration of emergency. And so using those constitutional powers to declare an emergency, she then ruled India for two years with almost unconstrained powers, uh, imprisoning her opponents, governing by decree, demolishing vast um, residential areas, and most controversially, implementing a policy of mass forcible sterilization. All of this ultimately only ended with her calling an election and being decisively removed from office in 1977.
1: So she lost the election that she subsequently called? She did, yeah. having expected, when she called it, that she would win. Mm. So so what's the correlation between calling the state of emergency and introducing these sort of draconian social policies, like sterilisation? What was that all about? Was it just stuff that she'd long wanted to do, not been able to do? Or? It's an interesting question. Um,
2: part of it seems to have been that there were elements within the group which surrounded Indira Gandhi, including her son Sanjay, who was a prominent advisor to her until his death in 1980. He's who, the guy that died in the plane crash. He's the one who died mm-hmm. in the plane crash. Yeah. Um, who saw this as an opportunity to implement long desired policies that would have been frustrated by the democratic process. So there, there was an element in those surrounding Indira Gandhi, who regarded the checks and balances involved in constitutionalism as barriers to programs for uh, the forcible restructuring of Indian society, uh, and which ultimately took advantage of the situation to implement those policies.
0: When you run a business, change is a chance to innovate. At Tyro, innovation is in our DNA, and we can reimagine the way you do payments and banking, from integrated FPOS to e-commerce. Change can be for the better. Tyro, better business banking. C Supply, consider if products are right for you.
1: So India at that time was sort of unaligned, weren't they, but perhaps more more in the Soviet sphere of influence, is that India right? was formerly a
2: key member of the non-aligned movement, mm. Uh, it was certainly a country which enjoyed cordial relations with the Soviet Union and which enjoyed a tense relationship with the United States, mm. particularly under the government of Richard <coughs> Nixon. It's important to place the government of Indira Gandhi in the context of Indian politics at the time, that her opponents were not solely those on the right whether from the point of view of economic conservatism, religious conservatism, or disaffected elements within our own political party, but also that India had and has a strong domestic communist tradition. Mm. Indeed, the first democratically elected communist government in the world was elected in the state of Kerala in 1957. And that Indian communist tradition in opposition to the Indian National Congress has been a if you, on one view a spur, on the other view a consistent thorn in the side of the Congress. So Indira Gandhi's government wasn't purely... can't purely be caricatured as a party of the left or a party of the right, but one which uh, swam <coughs> the streams in between these different opposing philosophical traditions.
1: Yeah, interesting, interesting. So Broome made these important decisions um, in the context um, of the petition case... Is there any hints about his sort of judicial independence in the colonial period? Absolutely. As I've noted, as a district court
2: judge, Broome was even then known for his independence and known for a somewhat surprising degree of confidence. When told, for example, that he lacked the power to make certain orders, he would brusquely reply that he knew that he had the power to make those orders. He was going to make them anyway. It's important to remember, as I've said, that as a judge of the district court, he was nonetheless still an official of the Indian Civil Service who had arrived in India as part of the governing steel frame mm. of the Raj. And his willingness to mm. buck authority and to attempt to hold colonial officials to account through his contempt powers would have been remarkable from a judge in any age. It was particularly remarkable from a judge who was still part of that civil service. And so in Broome's career, we see the tension between the ostensible British ideals of judicial independence and the actual reality of colonial
1: governance. Mm. So what were the legal guarantees of judicial independence in colonial India? Like, was there a colonial constitution, or there was presumably ordinances or statutes, or how did it sort of work? It's an interesting question, and it's obviously something which I'll
2: try to confine to the situation as it stood during Broom's time, because Mm, the actual... So under the Raj, British India was not solely one jurisdiction. It was divided up between an innumerable number of jurisdictions, some under the direct governance of the British, but hundreds more which were ruled as princely states, that is to say, under the governance of kings or princes who maintained notional sovereignty, but under British protection, as it were. All of these were regarded as part of British India, but different governing regimes operated in different places. During Broome's time in the United Provinces, an area under British rule, for much of that time, India's governance was provided by the the Government of India Act 1937, which was a statute of the British Parliament, Uh, which did establish some legal institutions, Mm. like the Federal Court of India, which did establish a... Legislative Assembly for the whole of India, which did provide for a greater sharing of power between elected institutions and British institutions. It wasn't solely a question of rule by decree, as it may have been in previous decades. But it's important to recognise that between the notional legal guarantees... And absolute colonial rule lay the messy situation in practice. Messy being an understatement when what we are talking about is, in practice, the detention or imprisonment of large numbers of independence activists for extended periods based effectively upon executive whim. Despite these notional legal guarantees, colonial India still maintained vast scope for of British officials to imprison, <coughs> detain, or even. Um, subject to severe punishment, individuals who were regarded as uh, threats to the
1: security of the state. So what, there was broad statutory powers to detain... Yes. Um, ..and punish? Yes. What, for risking the security of the state, broad notions like that? In the broadest sense, yes. Yeah. Um, obviously, the
2: study of state powers under colonial India is a topic for an entirely different mm. day. In general, I think that's an accurate description of the situation, mm. certainly in the years leading up to independence itself, particularly during the Second World War. I'll note for listeners that I'm speaking somewhat in generalisations, but I think it's important to bear in mind that notional legal guarantees in British India did not necessarily mean in practice what they meant on paper.
1: So you've said that he was a true liberal and brought human rights to the fore in his decision-making um on occasion. What was the the sort of constitutional rights context of of independence India, like the new constitution that came in and stuff? I'm really glad you asked that because
2: if anything the constitution of independent India illustrates some of the themes about William Broome's life that I find so fascinating. That it's a mix of continuity and change much of the structure of the Constitution of Independent India was based upon the Government of India Act 1937. That is to say, you can recognise in the new institutions which were created and the separation of powers, an attempt to carry out some of the promises that had notionally been made by the British for how India was to be governed. But in other respects, you see in the new constitution a deliberate reaction against the excesses of British colonial rule and a desire to create a new legal framework based upon rejection of those premises. And that's nowhere more evident than in Part 3 of the Indian Constitution, the Fundamental Rights. Mm. Some of these Fundamental Rights are those which will be found in Bills of Rights all around the world. The uh, statement that no person shall be denied equal protection of the laws in Article 14 a statement that no person shall be denied life or liberty except according to procedure established by law in Article 21, the freedom of religious expression in Article 25 sub 1. But in other respects, what you actually see in the Indian Constitution is an attempt to balance these imperatives. For example, Article 19 sub 1 of the Indian Constitution providing... a It provides for a variety of freedoms, including freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of occupation. But it's then followed by a series of sub-articles specifying the circumstances in which those rights can be derogated from, that these aren't absolute rights, they're subject to reasonable restrictions in pursuit of certain aims. What this means, ultimately, is that it's a constitution that is concerned both with bestowing rights, but with ensuring that those rights are subject to limitations in the pursuit of broader social goals it's that marrying together of individual rights and a sense of communal responsibility that in many respects made the Indian constitution something of a pioneer which has been a consistent mm. theme in its interpretation
1: it's really interesting how how the personal story of this guy staying behind kind of mirrors or reflects in some way the, these two legal traditions in terms of what you talked about, about the continuity and the change. Oh, absolutely. It's pretty, pretty interesting. No, that's part of what I find so interesting about Justice Broome, that he lived in a really interesting
2: era and embodied some of the contradictions of that era. William Broome was a man who came to India as an agent of a governing colonial power, who married an Indian woman, took Indian citizenship and died an Indian. He was a man who had come to India as part of a repressive colonial regime who proved... Bold and liberal in his judgments at every opportunity he had to do so. He was a man who had been raised in a colonial institution based upon difference and distinction but who throughout his life was both determined to defy those distinctions and appears to have been consistently fascinated by other languages and other cultures. He was a polyglot who taught himself or was taught a significant number of Indian languages and was indeed able to speak to witnesses in their own language in court. He was a man who was at once a symbol of continuity between the colonial Indian legal regime and the post-colonial, and at the same time embodied some of the shifts beyond the colonial legal framework towards the ideals of independent India.
0: Mm.
1: So I recently appeared in a case in Nauru where our opponents were often running what we thought were quite novel and interesting arguments about statutory interpretation and they seem to be able to find an Indian case for every proposition. There seems to be an Indian authority whether it's from a state supreme court or a federal court for sort of every occasion so I got us that's sort of my limited insight into the Indian legal system so can you tell us From your time there, what's the Indian legal system like now? It's obviously common law, right, in some ways, but what's the story?
2: I can't believe you didn't ask me about that. I would have loved to have helped with that. (laughs) Look, um, India is a common law Westminster system, like Australia. Like Australia, it owes much of its legal institutions to British precedents, both in terms of the common law and insofar as codified statutory procedures, the Indian Evidence Act, the Code of Criminal Procedure, the Code of Civil Procedure, enacted under colonial rule, still remain enormously important parts of Indian public and private law. There is an enormous amount of Indian law on practically every topic, and that speaks in part to the sheer volume of decision-making in its courts. Mm. Um, India's... It's a
1: federal system, right? So it it's is. got state courts and federal courts. Absolutely. Yeah. And unlike in Australia, India's
2: superior state courts, the high courts, also have a significant constitutional jurisdiction. Right. So... On the Constitution of India, you have the Supreme Court of India, the final court of appeal, which consists of 34 judges who normally hear cases in benches of two or three, and you have the state high courts who similarly sit in relatively small benches and produce substantial amounts of judgments. The result ultimately means that there is an enormous amount of case law out there and it can sometimes be difficult to reconcile different streams which have, as it were, grown up independently from each other, not through conscious choice, but simply because it can be difficult to identify every salient case on every principle.
1: Well, that's consistent with my observation, that there seemed to be a case for every occasion. Yeah. Yeah. That said, part of what has always interested me about
2: Indian law is that you have this situation where independent India has inherited the common law and British statutes which, under colonial rule, were used as institutions for the perpetuation of colonial rule to, in favour of expanded state powers, in favour of a limited judicial role, to preserve the power of people who had power in society and to exclude those who didn't. In some circumstances, the history of Indian law after independence has been the same thing, that there have been points of intense conservatism. There have been points of intense reaction. You have the acquiescence of the Supreme Court to abuses under the emergency. You have, in some cases, the acquiescence of the Supreme Court to contemporary abuses by the Indian government. You have, throughout its history, examples of law not living up to those promises but you also have extraordinary stories to the contrary. You have attempts by Indian judges to refashion legal principles or to refashion the interpretation of statutes so as to suit Indian conditions, so as to mean something in an environment in which you have, a, have enormous social diversity, in which you have so many people who have historically been excluded from power the law not just being used as a shield to govern the way that society is, but as a sword to redress societal injustices. Mm. And so it's that use of traditional institutions in a transformative way and the way in which law can ultimately be used as an instrument of social change. And mm. I think it's part of what is so fascinating and inspiring about the Indian legal story. For all, that it's not an unalloyed story of continued and absolute triumph.
1: So you said before... Uh, that Nehru, the Indian Prime Minister, had intervened to assist William Broome to become a citizen, to allow him to take up that post. And I was reminded of this part of your your article. Um, In the current age, uh, you say, of escalating intolerance and xenophobic nationalism, Nehru's idea of India remains a powerful alternative to those who would make the nation great again by slicing away undesired pieces of it. And you, in the article, go on to link that to Broome's life and sort of what it says about India um, as an idea. sort of interested if you could expand on all of that for us.
2: Well, that's part of what's consistently fascinated me about William Broome. I'm acutely conscious of the fact that as a rich white guy who used to live in India... I have chosen to spend a lot of time studying another rich white guy who lives in India. (laughs) One of the key things in contemporary Indian legal studies is what's called subaltern studies, which Mm. is elevating voices which have not previously been heard, or um, letting the subaltern speak. And I'm conscious that increasing the role of rich white men in Indian history is about as far from (laughs) subaltern studies as you can get (laughs) It's its own special branch of superaltern studies.
1: (laughs) But what I, I love the admission in all of that. You're just putting that all on the record, I, but you're continuing to do it.
2: <laughs> I, I don't think I can successfully deny it until
1: I have to work within
2: that space.
1: So Yeah, so what does it all say about yeah. India? Like, well, the studying the rich, white Indian judge? Like, what's the point of it? The highest I can put it <laughs>
2: is this. Shaulal Nehru's vision of India was of a nation not defined by a single religion or by a single language or by a single ethnicity or by a single political ideology. Jawaharlal Nehru's idea of India, as it were, was that the Indian people would be united not by the mechanisms which had traditionally been used to divide them, of caste, of language, of religion, but by commitment to India itself by a civic nationalism Mm. based upon, (coughs) uh, based to a certain degree upon territory, but ultimately based upon a set of ideals that were capable of transcending those divisions. William Broom was a man who came to India as an agent of the colonial power, but who subsequently devoted himself to the service of India, who rejected the racial divides that had served as a means by which to prop up colonial rule and who ultimately devoted himself to the service of the new nation. Jawaharlal Nehru's conception of India was broad enough to allow William Broome to be Indian, regardless of his religion, regardless of his race, regardless of the language that he spoke, because it was an ideal based upon common service rather than inherited traits. To the extent that William Broome says anything, it says something about the breadth and generosity of that form of civic nationalism, which I think is capable of being a continued inspiration to us as a, an ideal for, as I've said, a nation that can be built on something larger than what we're born.
1: So you said that you've spoken to uh, his family, his descendants. Yeah. Have you gotten an insight into what they see as his legacy or how they regard their ancestor? They're very proud of William Broome,
2: as they should, but he is a man who accomplished extraordinary things and I think was a remarkable figure. One of the highlights of this research was getting to have dinner with his daughter and grandson in their home near Delhi to be able to go through William Broome's papers to find out that he was a man who enjoyed science fiction, to... (laughs) read in his notes the very careful sketch that he'd made of when the Voyager two space probe would encounter the outer planets in the solar system on given dates. He was a man who had wide ranging interests beyond the law and wasn't just defined by his legal interests. He is a man who was remembered as a wide ranging and interesting figure with a
1: considerable hinterland beyond the law. Mm. Well mate, I think on that lovely personal note Um, I think we'll call it a wrap. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on The Wigs. Thanks, Steve.
0: Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mint. It takes a special type of person to run a business. But the real secret ingredient, it's the ability to reinvent yourself, to accept change and be fueled by it to innovate. At Tyro, innovation is in our DNA. From integrated FPOS and e-commerce to telehealth and banking built to answer your needs, we can help you reimagine the way you do payments and banking. Because change can be for the better. Tyro, better business banking. T's and C's apply. Consider if products are right for you.